players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Icefang Kowatl, Uro, Oko, and on occasion, White Cards too. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabin University, and TheEpicStorm.com. everyone, welcome to episode 22 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Choose Your Starter. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Brian Koval and Bryant Cook. How are you all doing today? Doing well. How are you, Phil? Uh, doing pretty good. Definitely might have been up till 3 in the morning last night gaming because I couldn't sleep. But other than that, no complaints. Is that weird? Like, <laughs> I, I gotta be honest, like my normal... Like, I usually go to bed around 12.30 to 1.30, but, like, lights off, go to sleep is probably between 2.30 and 3 for me, and that's just baseline these days. Well, under normal circumstances, I get up at 6.45 a.m. to, like, get to work on time and all that, um, but now I get up at about 8 in the morning because I start work at 8 in the morning, so... Okay, I guess that's fair. Yeah, my my alarm during normal work times is set for 5.15, like, uh, my workday starts at 7.30, like, like ass and seat. So I've, I've been really enjoying not being awake that early, but I, I'm impressed that I, I guess you, you still have job responsibilities. So being awake at eight is still something you have to do, but I don't. So like my, my normal sleep schedule these days is like 2.30 to 11. So uh, I'm not one to, like, I tend to burn the candle at both ends. I stay up pretty late, or in my opinion, pretty late, like 1 a.m. And then I wake up uh, at about 7 to go to work. Not as degenerate as you two, but uh, I often moto pretty late. And then Sunday, or Saturday night, I decided to play the 3 a.m. Vintage Challenge Whoa. and then stay up and do the Legacy Challenge at 11. Uh, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> so, like, imagine that that's just your life. Like, the, like... Uh, eco baronins and like Guldicots of the world who like that is what they do like no offense I like those guys I'm not trying to shit on them but just like that lifestyle just being a moto grinder where like you live and die by the the 3 a.m challenge schedule like oh that just I I am both insanely jealous and extremely relieved that that's not my life at the same time so uh let me tell you how upset I was Sunday morning I had started the 3 a.m. challenge 3-0, and it was only like 54 people, and I was like, you know, I could probably 4-2 make this, and I lose my round 4 to a couple nut draws, lose my round 5 because I misplayed one game that crushed another, and I lose my round 6 because my opponent tinkers in a Blightsteel, no hand, I have lethal on board, but they have a, pirate, or a, a spell bomb in play, the Nile spell bomb, and so I top deck... Uh, I have to draw a spell in order to kill them with my Sprite Dragon. And my draw spell is Breach. So Breach is going to murder them, or my Sprite Dragon will murder them. So they crack Spell Bomb. 
They exile my graveyard and then hit Pyroblast to kill my Sprite Dragon. Oh! All in one fluid action. And then their Void Steel kills me. And that had ended, like, I was in 10th place, so, like, my sad 4-2 would have made top 8. And at 7.30 in the morning, my red eyes, and I was just, like, ready to have a nervous breakdown. I was like, that's how this is going to end? Your girlfriend's like, good morning, and you're like, shut up! (laughs) (laughs) Don't talk to me. (laughs) It was pretty rough. That that sounds awful. But uh, I guess that bleeds into my first section of my life updates. Uh, I've been playing a lot of challenges the last few weeks due to, uh, you know, quarantine life. Uh, I've lost quite a few winning ins. I lost three. I've top aided one challenge. I've been playing mostly Legacy and Vintage, a little bit of Pioneer here and there. Um, but in Vintage, I've actually switched off PO to the Breach deck, the Luris Breach deck. It's just so much more powerful, and it's not clunky. Like, playing the Paradoxical Outcome deck, you get a lot of clunky draws sometimes, those just don't exist with PO because all your cards are much more lower to the ground, partially due to the nature of Luris. But uh, I've really been enjoying it a lot more. Um, so what else have you been up to other than just like the, the magic stuff? Uh, I mentioned in the last podcast that uh, I've been playing lots of Pokemon Blue. Well, I graduated to Pokemon Silver and I actually beat it about 45 minutes ago. Um, you actually have to beat the Elite Four twice in that game. And the second time, I had a Dragonite, and it just wasn't even close. I never had to use a Revive or anything. I just couldn't believe how OP my favorite Pokemon is. So the uh, the, but more- the important question, though, uh, what, who is your starter? Uh, Typhlo- or uh, what's, what's Typhlosion? Cyndaquil, uh, uh, I believe. Yeah, that one. I just like Fire Pokemon. They're way cooler. I, I don't know. Wow, that's interesting, because I've always been split on what whoever the not-Fire Pokemon are. Like... I love Squirtle and Bla- or Bulbasaur equally, and I would just never in my life choose Charmander, no matter how many times I play Pokemon. Well, how are you going to ban Rite of Flame and Pokemon if you don't choose the starter Pokemon? All right, I guess if you have a brand to protect. <laughs> that makes sense. See, what I usually do is I eat my starter as soon as possible. Just, like, get them out that make things too easy. Like, your starter stats are so much higher than all the other crap that you're catching in the wild. You're a degenerate. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah i'm not a fan of that i i'm like the you live and die by your starter like your starter at the end should still be in your roster so i'm this i'm the sort of person who plays pokemon to battle competitively and like my favorite pokemon is shuckle so all i want to do is cast toxic on people and watch them bleed to death over 10 turns so like it's basically the same thing i do in magic but with cute cuddly creatures i have died to a lot of toxics yeah But uh, regarding magic, huge, huge shout out to MTG Meta I.io. Uh, I think on Twitter they're just MTG Meta I.O. Uh, they, I'm sure everyone by the time they're listening to this has heard about the Planeswalker uh, point history uh, erase. And they created a GitHub that allows you to download your entire history in a clean um, Excel doc that I personally uploaded to my Google Sheets with all my other data. And it's super clean. I got to organize it. And I actually tweeted at them to add in the player count for every event. So they have like, you would finish in 15th place, but you wouldn't know out of how many. So I got them to add in. It turns out that 15th might have been a Star City Games or something. Um, And that's something I personally care about. So I was really appreciative of that. Yeah. Uh, I don't really care about losing my DCI number. Like, I've had that for a while. And like, it means something. But losing the history was brutal. So I'm I'm glad that gets uh, archived. 
Yeah, going back to the scoreboard is very important to me among my circle of friends where we uh, talk about who's beaten who over the years and who who my nemesis is and uh, just like occasionally dumping all of that information into MTG stats and that tells you like your win rate against everyone you've played against over the last year or whatever. Like that's an, an incredible resource that's just gone if we don't have the, the core data to sh- shove in there. So I'm glad someone is doing something to at least save what we had once. Hopefully the new system will have some sort of tracker in it. So I went to mtgmeta.io because .io is a website, and I was actually looking to donate to them, and their donate is so hidden. By the time I got to it, I was like, you know, I don't even know if I want to donate Uh, because I had to do so much work just to find it. Uh, Yeah. But uh, other than that, like... I'm sure like you guys have a very similar experience here. Quarantine life is really starting to settle in. Uh, I had to leave the house for the first time in like three weeks today. It was brutal. Yeah, I have left twice. Once was to drop off my car at the shop. The other was to pick up the car from my shop. And other than that, I've gone on walks. That's it. Yeah, I've got a daily walk, weather permitting. Uh, My girlfriend and I did play Frisbee in the rain last week because we just needed to move and it was raining. So we just toughed it out. But uh, I'm about due for a grocery store trip. I think we're planning it for tomorrow. So uh, I'm going to be doing that. Um, It's the first time I've gone into public since the masks requirement has been a rule in Pennsylvania. Like it's been like encouraged already, but it's actually just a rule now. You can't go in the store without it. And I've also been noticing this like subconscious anxiety when I'm watching movies or TV now where people are just like out doing stuff. Like I watched uh, The Farewell with Aquafina the other night. The movie was great, by the way. And, and like the the premise is like grandma's dying of cancer, but she doesn't know that. So they stage a fake wedding in China to like have an excuse for all the family to be around grandma one more time without telling her she has cancer. So, and they're all just like talking about like, yeah, we have to fly over to China. And I was like, you can't do that. Oh my God. Like, that's crazy. But then I realized that that's just like a thing you can do in the normal world. <laughs> like all of that stuff. Or like, uh, I was watching uh, season three of Fargo and there there's a scene where like the main character's son shows up to work and he's like, Hey, I brought burgers. And, like, he just has, like, a bag of burgers. He just drove across town to grab them and visit mom at work. I'm like, ah, you can't do that. But you could in 2016 or whatever when that season was filmed. So I I have to get my conscious mind to remind my subconscious that, you know, there was a time when you could go outside. So one interesting thing that I found is I'll be watching a TV show and, you know, I really appreciate the ones that already had their full season edited. Like Westworld, for example, is probably my favorite active TV show. They had the entire season cut and ready to shoot. Like, they're, like all they had to do was press play every Sunday. It's done. But I also watch Walking Dead that also premieres Sunday nights. And Walking Dead had to shut down their entire production. It turns out two weeks out from their final episode, didn't even have it done. And now it's being uh, postponed a couple months. It's just like, how are you not done with your episode that was supposed to release in two weeks? I don't know. Like, it, it kind of bothers me a little bit. I, I am shocked and relieved hearing this because I, as a rule, I just don't read about behind the scenes stuff. I want to be transported. I want to be hit with the movie magic. Like, that is part of my experience engaging with visual media. But I also noticed that Walking Dead just fucking stopped. 
Like, the, like I just went to watch it one Monday morning and there was no episode and that was three weeks ago. So I'm glad I finally figured out what happened with that. Yeah, it's so obnoxious. I just feel like the show's run by idiots. <laughs> that um, might be true. But I really like people that are prepared and props to Westworld and season three is terrific. Yep. Better Call Saul is still rolling also. Yeah, that's actively producing new episodes. I think the season's about wrapping up, but they haven't, they didn't miss in the middle. I binged all of season four any day once it hit Netflix, but AMC doesn't share to any streaming services, so I'm just like not watching it right now for the newest season. Fair enough. Yeah, that I think that's probably the best show on TV. So uh, a special anniversary uh, this week. It is the three year anniversary of the banning of Sunsea's Divining Top. And uh, I know this is like, according to the Reddit uh, an unpopular decision, but I think they banned the right card. Some people talk about terms or counterbalance. Stupid. Wizards knocked this one out of the park for once. I loved, loved, loved the gameplay in the format with Top. I know I'm in the minority there, but like the Top Miracles versus DNT matchups were like so intricate and interesting and such an elaborate dance, and they always went to time, and I loved them. Uh, but like, yeah, we've, we've, we've moved on from there. It's it's fine. I yeah. can look fondly on those times and say, okay, we don't need to do that again. Yeah, I, I agree. There was a lot of really cool stuff happening in Legacy at the time. Uh, Death and Taxes specifically with like Phyrexian Revoker that could turn off the top out of the main deck. Like that was freaking sweet. Uh, and, and like, but like you look at a card like Terminus or Counterbalance, those cards are really embarrassing to put on a ban list. Like Miracles is still good. And it still plays those cards, but now they're just like optional. Top just made those two cards ridiculous, like sent the already playable card into the stratosphere. I do miss Top out of like a, a mono red painter or like decks that were just using like a value top or like old Doomsday. I guess they don't even need it anymore, but uh, still, I, I think for everyone's sanity, like I, I have not missed Top myself. In three years. Like, it, honestly, if you hadn't told me it had been three years, I would have just been like, I don't know, like, one year? One and a half? When did that happen? I don't know. Like, it, it just disappeared, and I never looked back. So, rest in peace, The buddy. only Eternal Weekend I ever... Oops, sorry. No, go ahead. The only Eternal Weekend I ever went to uh, was the last one before Top was legal, and every single round went 45 minutes over time. And uh, it was pretty miserable. Like, part of it was that the event itself was a little bit understaffed. The other part was Miracles Mirrors went forever. And people would be like, well, if you're just good with your deck, you would never go to time. But from a wizard standpoint, if you have to put yourself in their shoes, you shouldn't have to respect players to be good with cards in order to play with them. Like, that shouldn't be part of your philosophy, in my opinion. And, uh, like, just telling people if you're bad you can't play with this card shouldn't be allowed right and and like the position it puts the person across the table from because like during that era no matter what deck you were on if your opponent was like turn one top and then like spent a little time thinking about their first activation you had to be like you need to play faster like you got to play faster like 48 minutes left in the round you got to play faster like you you don't get this (laughs) much time you don't get 45 seconds every time you activate top because it's going to happen 100 times in our match like you got to go and like just being uh, i think the net stress level in addition to be a reasonable to being a reasonable power level ban also just like the net stress level of every player involved in those games uh, i i'm not sad it's gone 
So something I've never like said publicly, but part of the reason why I played Sword of War and Peace in that era was just so that I could connect once or twice and the game would be over. Yeah, if you win game one, you win the match. Like, just get in. All right, but like moving on to talk about like the current format, um, I've been playing a lot of Magic to medium results recently. So I've been focused on doing a lot of like experimenting uh, and brewing and like trying to learn about the format and see what works in this new world. Um, so like I'm not focusing on like trying to optimize my win rate or anything. I'm trying out new things. And like, boy, am I burning play points because decks are good right now. So whenever you play a league with something that's a little bit suboptimal, like you, you, you definitely feel it. Um, I feel like I've had a lot of good takes on the format, and like I figured things out very quickly, but I, I just haven't been able to break anything. Like I figured out that Null Rod was insane very quickly. I figured out that like mana acceleration was better than Bile very quickly, and just not putting up any real results. Haven't gotten even a five O trophy in the last two weeks or anything like that. Uh, it's it's been a little bit rough. Phil, like you, I've actually been playing a lot of Moto, like prelims. Like I'm like you, I'm not trying to brag, but like I've been doing fairly well. Um, but I've been talking to other people, and they're also saying that this is the most they've been playing, not only because of quarantine, but because Legacy is fun right now. Like it's different, and it's a lot more lower to the ground. Like it's not you cast your Uro, I cast my Uro. You play Oko, I answer your Oko, then play my own. Like, it's a lot more interactive. Like, stuff like Nibble Mongoose is seeing play again, and that's fun. Um, sorry, I know that this is your section, but I just wanted to jump in. Oh, back. no, like, I'm I'm totally in agreement. Like, deck building is beyond warped right now, but, like, as far as actual gameplay goes, it's super interesting, and all sorts of crazy stuff is happening. Um, I don't know if you saw, like, the, the Reddit thread just, like, talking about all the spicy deck lists, but, like, the Sharknado card saw play in a 5-0 deck list, and, like, that stupid cycling turtle where, like, you cycle it four times and then you, like, win the game or some shit like that, like, is also seeing play. And it's just like, what is what is happening right now? It, it's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. And I know we're going to talk about it more in a lower section, so I'm not going to go too deep. But uh, when we get to the, like, impact of companion section... I want to talk about like the full deck building ramifications of a companion because it's it's so much deeper than I think anyone expected it to be. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, so just a couple of quick words and then I think it's time to move on. Cause, like, we have a lot of super cool things to talk about. The format has probably changed more in this two-week period than I, I've ever seen in any two weeks of Legacy. Um, so in my off time, I've been doing a lot of walking and running. I'm just trying to make sure I get out of the house either every day or every other day just to like stay active. And um, kind of like Brian, I'm on a nostalgia trip. So in college with like all of my roommates and like people who lived across the hall from me, we played Diablo 2 together and like we got into the modding community. And then I randomly saw on Reddit that the mod that I played in college like a week ago released a new like huge update. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back into this for a little while. So there's going to go like 50 hours of my time and I won't regret it at all. You got nothing but time these days. Yeah. So like on the subject of video games, uh, I've, I've mentioned Borderlands the last few episodes. I'm into it. I 
found out that uh, my brother, who he lives out of state, I don't see him very often. Uh, I found out he's also gaming on PC during the quarantine. So that I've, it's an opportunity to hang out and talk to my brother, who I don't see very often. And he downloaded Borderlands, but it turns out his computer can't handle it. Uh, he suggested Dead Island, and then it turns out that the Dead Island Definitive Edition has replaced De- Dead Island in like the Steam store. So, and he has the original, which is incompatible with the definitive version. So we can't play that unless I find the old version somewhere. So now I'm trying to convince him that Monster Hunter World is where we want to be. So we're trying to find a co-op game together because uh, co-op gaming right now is basically the only way you can hang out with people. All right. Um, why don't we move on to feedback? Bryant, do you want to take this first one here? Um, I feel like it plays most strongly to your strengths. Wow, making me read the longest one fell Yeah, I'll take the short one that's next. You could paraphrase it if you don't want to read the full paragraph. That's fine. Uh, Hey guys, great podcast. I would like to ask you about best approaches to collecting or just analyzing data in the shape of your own matches. Let's say you have a deck and you want to get an idea of its power level in the format. How many matches do you need to record before you form an an informed opinion? How often should you reset your recording? Thinking here about shifts in the format, or just might cloud your overall win percentage if you just keep on recording across format shifts. How many matches against a single archetype is really needed to form an opinion? I'm personally 10-0 with Doomsday versus Elves. I feel confident in saying that this is a good matchup there. I'm 3-1 against Omnitel, so I feel much less certain. Any thoughts are much appreciated. Kind regards, Martin, a.k.a. Neville Shoot. Uh, and this was from our website contact form, which we don't get a lot of uh, comments in. So thank you, Martin. Uh, I'm sure the two of you are also old OGs of Legacy. Martin is an original sourcer uh, from MTG The Source. He used to post a ton back in the day. I know that Martin is from Europe, from across the pond. Really good magic player. He used to play a lot of ad nauseum tendrils. So personally... I track every single match I play, I categorize it, but I do break up my matches into um, overall format shifts. So like I'm currently in my post-breach shift right now. I didn't switch with companions and non-companions. Maybe that's something I'll do down the road if it ends up being necessary. But I usually do like bands or printings of major cards. I did a new one for Modern Horizons because it shook up the format so much. Uh, I felt like that was needed. Um, yeah, so for certain subsets, so like let's say this is something I was struggling with myself post-breach. I was 5-5 five and five against Death and Taxes uh, after 10 matches, and I felt like in a lot of those 10 matches that I got pretty unlucky, but then again, Deafening Silence has been released, and that card's really good against me, but historically I'm much closer to 75-80% to 80% against Death and Taxes. And I was like, I can't believe I'm 50% after 10 matches. Maybe the deck just got so much better against me. That said, I've continued to play. And my matches are now leveling out to the mean where I'm much closer to 70% now after I've been playing more. And I feel like you will hit that mean if your data set just gets larger and larger. I personally start looking at deck list percentage um, results around 70 to 75 matches. I know some people do 50, but there's still a lot of variance in 50 matches, in my opinion. Do you two have any opinions on that? Yes. Oh, you first. So uh, I can account for when we're really trying to pin down matchup percentages. Like I've done uh, full team Pro Tour testing, 
uh, the last uh, Pro Tour, Pro Tour Phoenix, I worked with uh, Matt Sperling and Paul Rietzel and Cyrus and uh, a big team of powerful wizards. And we started off by just like going out into the leagues and seeing what happened. And then when we thought we were onto something or we needed a better picture, we would just do like a 20 game set, just like heads up, like you play your deck, I'll play the enemy deck and just slam it out and see what happens. And if you really need to know what a matchup percentage is like, that's how you do it. Because just going into the leagues and hoping to get some information, like, I guess it depends on what you're doing with the information. Like, if you're just going to play magic with the deck you want to play, and then you just want to know how maybe it'll inform some sideboarding decisions or what. But if you really want to, like, fundamentally understand a matchup, you have to just get a friend and jam reps with it to really pin down what it's about and how you can change the percentage, what the percentage actually is, all of those things. I would agree with that if you're only looking for a specific uh, matchup, if you're looking for like a greater range. I, I don't hate just data mining through leagues personally. I'll often use it to, to change cyborg slots. Like if I'm 80% against miracles, but I'm struggling against the mid-range decks, I might cut that fifth cyborg slot for a mid-range slot or maybe something that could be used in both like a rending volley or something crazy um just a thought right so uh, if you're if you're on the deck and you just want to know how your deck performs just running leagues forever is the right way to do because like bryant obviously is heavily invested in the epic storm uh, so just knowing what the epic storm is performing like over massive amounts of data is the result if you're looking for something specific like if Lurist Grixis Delver is the best deck and you have 100k coming up next weekend and you're not sure if your deck can beat Lurist Grixis Delver, you need to find a friend and figure out if you can beat it or else you just need to get off the deck. So like unless you're married to a deck, like if you're trying to find a deck versus trying to tune a deck, that changes your process as well. Another thing, just in terms of data size, most of the data that you as an individual collects will not actually have real statistical significance. And so a lot of times you need to rely on sort of the feel that you are getting for the matchup, kind of like Bryant was talking about with like death and taxes versus storm matchups. Like your data may say one thing, but you might feel unfavored every game. And that might be sort of like the real indication of, of what's happening there. So if you're just jamming leagues and you have 10 matches versus a deck, you might be 7-3, but every single time you're on the ropes and you're you're struggling, and that might be the real indication of what's actually going on there. Um, so one thing that I've done in the past, like when I didn't have access to testing partners, is I would just like proxy off the other deck. I would sit down with my deck and the other deck and just kind of like look at how both sides of the matchup would play out. Like I just kind of like play face up, try to think about like what do I need to be thinking about from each term turn and like really try to think about the the turn cycles what my roles are in the matchup and that sort of thing helped me out a lot before i had really good testing partners and the availability of magic online to play 3000 games so a little bit of a funny thing here when breach hit the format i started out two and four and i was like well it's not as bad as i thought it would be for the deck playing forcible and silence it could be worse and then I think I finished by the time Breach was banned, like three and seventeen. Like I just couldn't beat that deck at all. And by the time people had learned how to play Breach and quit losing to themselves, I was just like a ten percent favorite. Like I just could not beat that deck. 
All right. So, Phil, why don't you take the next uh, comment? Okay. Um, so this is one of, from one of the followers of my stream, the Innistrad Revenue Service, the IRS. Uh, did any of you expect Grixis Delver to go as far as being willing to cut Gurmag Angler and possibly True Name, depending on the build, arguably their premier threats for the Lurus requirement? Uh, we actually got a reply from the great Wilson Hunter. He said, yes, period. Uh, so one of the things we really focused on last episode was how good we thought Lurus was. We definitely thought that that was going to be the best card in the format. Now, um, I think I speak for all of us when I say, like, we definitely thought the companion mechanic was insanely powerful, but I don't know that we saw foresaw quite this degree of change in the format in such a quick amount of time. What say you two? Yeah, so, like, if we're talking about, like, paradigm shifts, like, uh, like beat em or join em kind of breaks in the legacy format as we knew it previously nothing has hit this hard like i i, I don't know how fa far back like i can't speak to like the release of mercadian masks or whatever but like paradigm shifting cards like oko oko took some a little while like oh maybe i'll try one oh i'll go to two now control decks just play four so like that took some a while to gain some speed ren and six even like even after several main major events like this very podcast was still like yeah maybe it's bannable i'm not sure like it's pretty good and that was after like multiple premiere events so uh and like breach people were like building it wrong building it weird eventually they dialed in and it was absolutely heinous but like nothing really just snapped the format like this like right in the face as soon as the set dropped the way companions have i think it's twofold so thing it's a combination of like both the crazy power level of these cards and the fact that everyone is at home just playing Magic all the time. I do think that's part of it. The interesting thing to me is that people are either, I love playing with these or I hate playing with these, and we'll get into a little bit more, but so many people enjoy playing with these, and it doesn't feel, at least to me, and Phil might have a different opinion here because he's on the opposite end of the spectrum for having one for my deck, is I almost feel like if some of the people that were unhappy had one that fit their strategy, maybe there'd be less people upset because it feels good start like always having something to do with your mana. Um, and I know that's crazy, but they're enjoyable to play with. And I've seen a lot of tweets today being like, just because you're having fun doesn't mean it's healthy. Okay, sure. Um, but if everyone's having fun, let's say hypothetically in a perfect world, everyone is having a blast, does that mean it's not healthy? I don't know if that's true. I mean, just like a hypothetical, imagine that Eldrazi Aggro got to start with an X-cost creature as a companion that had some deck-building requirement that like wasn't super scary to them, right? So they can always mulligan to... Thorn, Chalice, whatever, and then always have the follow-up threat. Like, there, there's so many decks that could benefit greatly from there being more companions. Uh, so, like, the, the mechanic is obviously, like, super, super busted, but um, if you said there's going to be 50 more companions over the next three years, I would take a deep breath and go, okay, this is Legacy now, let's do it. Yeah, so, like, the... I think the issue is that, like, Luris 
fits so nicely into several pre-existing decks that people don't feel good about it. It, Unless you're winning with it. If you were already a Storm player and you just got this thing literally for free, then that's pretty sweet. But, like, the other decks have real decisions to make. Like, the Zerda decks, like, they lose Chalice of the Void and they lose Monastery Mentor. And, like, now they just have to be a combo deck. So, like, that's a real cost. Uh, Putting 80 cards in your Miracles deck is a real cost to get Yorion. Like, uh... Like uh, only playing even cost cards, uh, you lose out on Force of Will for your Gyruda combo deck. Like these are Force of Negation as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you can't protect your Gyruda with that anyway. But yeah, you lose all the forces, uh, and like these are real costs. So we're gonna talk about that as we go forward. But like, it's not like everyone just gets a free starter Pokemon now, and it has better stats than all the other Pokemon you meet in the wild. Like, you, you need to sacrifice to make it happen. All right. Um, so just, I, I guess we should kind of push the episode along and, like, get into our, like, our nice talking points in order. But before we do that, um, I think we did miss a couple of cards in our set review. Uh, we were kind of rushed through the end of it because we talked for a long time because this is eternal glory. Um, but we failed to talk about the Triome lands last time around, which, as expected, are seeing play in four-color loam. And we failed to mention Wilt, which is green and a colorless... Is it Destroy or Exile? It's Destroy. destroy. It's just nat- strictly better naturalized. It's naturalized with Cycling 2. Yeah, and that's been seeing a play in a lot of the like quote-unquote miracles-ish decks. Yeah, so I recorded a league with... Uh a four-color Yorion build of my design earlier today. Uh, I just wanted to beat Delver and play 80 cards to do it, and that was the first time I put Wilt in a constructed deck. And I played against Delver three times, I brought in Wilt every time, and didn't feel bad at all. Because normally you have to make the decision of, like, do I want this disenchant just in case they draw their Winter Orb? And it's like, yep, (laughs) it cycles. Freebie. You can even, like, cycle it early and snap it back later. Like, just putting cycling on such a utility card is kind of dumb. Honestly, if I'm mad about anything in this set, it's Wilt. Like, way madder about Wilt than the companions existing, just at philosophically. I added Wilt into my Pioneer Lotus Breach deck, and like Brian was saying, if you don't need it, you just cycle it, and it feels so good. Like, this card did not need to exist. Like, Strictly Better Naturalize already existed, um, I can't think of the uh, re- return to nature. Is that it? The one that also exiles a card from a graveyard? Like, you don't need something even better than return to nature. Like, return to nature was power creep enough, but then to like six months later go, eh, it wasn't quite good enough, and just add draw a card to it? That's insane. I think the tinfoil hat theory is that a lot of these cards are being designed for best of one on MTG Arena. So you want to be able to have these like quote unquote sideboard cards in your main deck that also have some other degree of utility on them. Yeah, so I think that's kind of twofold, and they're both arena based. Like best of one is part of it. Like uh, I would never main de- like I've been drafting a lot. Like I, I actually just really love the arena interface and grinding up my collection on there. Like free to play. Uh, if you if you get like five wins out of a draft out of a possible seven you've made money so like it's really good value to draft on arena and like i've been putting like wilt and uh the dimensional breach or whatever it's called the exile three enchantments card just in my main deck because you can cycle it and the other half of that i think is that 
if Magic wants to be an esport, it needs to reduce obvious variance wherever it can without losing being Magic the Gathering. Like, we can't just become Hearthstone where you get a, a free mana every turn uh, and you're, you just linearly accrue resources as the game goes on because then it's not magic anymore but like luis scott vargas losing the finals of the pro tour on camera with the whole world watching because he mauled to four and his opponent didn't like that that's bad for the game and like it's part of the game and those of us who are invested in the game get it but it's very bad for the game like some kid who just like mauls to four his like first week on arena then just deletes it because he's not that invested like we just lost a magic player for life so cycling the cycling mechanic is just really nice about reducing variance i'm not sure if you saw it but today there was an article released that had magic ranked as a tier two esport there was only three other games in the tier one and then tier two was about eight other games but i mean that puts magic in roughly the top 10 esports games which seems kind of crazy if you think about it. And it makes, if I'm at the sitting at the head of Wizards, I'm feeling pretty good if Magic the Gathering is con- considered a top 10 eSport. Is, yeah, is, that, is that actually true, though? Like, when I think all of the eSports that I've invested time into watching, like, Magic doesn't come close. I, think, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I watched a decent They're just going of off of Twitch viewership, I believe. Oh, okay. Sure. All right. Yeah. If there's some hard data, then that makes some sense. But uh, I definitely, as someone who gets magic, even like I, I don't watch a whole lot of coverage, but I don't get League of Legends at all. I've never played a game. Like I, I understand like basically what the teams are trying to do, but I don't understand any of the actual application of those skills or like how to get to the end point. But I will watch an entire League of Legends tournament because it's just entertaining and i don't think that magic is even close to that value uh for like an uninvested watcher but it's cool that we are somewhere on a list and whatever magic is doing to make it more exciting to watch for the rando is going to be good for all of us over time so when do we get the magic online euro noises where it's like or whatever it does yes thank thank you that's what i was looking for well funny enough (laughs) Let me tell you, since you brought it up, Magic Online noises. Uh, I I co-streamed with Phil last week. Uh, I, I joined him on his stream. We played the Arosa deck that I was really into before the Companions r- ruined the format for it. But uh, I had to trade Phil some cards. <laughs> I think he needed like four Mistress Bobble and two Uro, and it was like $400 or something worth of cards that he needed to borrow. So like... I logged into Magic Online on my desktop. I normally play it on my laptop. And I had my headphones on and everything. I was ready to stream. And just the theme music that I had for not turned off yet because I don't play it on my desktop just piped into my brain. And it hurt so bad. And I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. I don't think you can from the screen. So you have to endure it for the login period and the loading period before you can find how to turn it off. And whoever thought that was a good idea, that was not one of the better changes to Magic Online. All right, let's All right. So let's why don't transition. we head into our first section? We're almost 40 minutes in. Uh, section one is called Keeping an Open Mind. And before we get into this, I'd like to start off by saying that uh, this is a small rib on our lovely co-host, Phil. I respect his legacy opinions. He's a terrific legacy player and a great person. But boy, Phil, were you wrong. Um, well, well kind of, but we'll, we'll talk about that. But... Uh, 
we had a conversation before we recorded our last episode, and it was on a legacy figure in the community memeing on Dranith Magistrate and the hypothetical death and taxes cards that get printed. And I thought that maybe Dranith Magistrate could be playable one day in the right metagame and getting cyborg options was okay. And uh, not everyone views it as that way. They might want a card they can play in their main deck, which I totally understand. But as someone who plays with Burning Wish, I look at every bad instant, or I shouldn't say instant, every bad sorcery that comes out. And I think, is this a theoretical Burning Wish target? And if it's even slightly playable, I get a copy for my Stormbinder for maybe one day. And that's how I often look at cards. Yeah, so... When I evaluated Dranith Magistrate, and when this same person did, uh, it was in the context of, like, this metagame and every metagame that had existed in the past X number of years. And the card was not playable. Uh, it has a number of problems. It doesn't play particularly well with a lot of things that were going on with the deck. And then it turns out that Companion was just the most busted mechanic ever printed, like, probably better than things like Dredge, Phyrexian Mana, Storm. Uh, and I totally eat crow on this one, and, like, Dranith Magistrate is absolutely uh, a playable legacy card. So, something that I've always personally felt is, like, metagames change, and I remember playing 10 years ago and thinking, like, this card's gonna be good forever, being Infernal Tutor, and now the year's 2020, and I don't even play Infernal Tutor anymore. So, like, keeping things in the back of your head, in my opinion, is, like, a super helpful thing to do, and understanding that, like, Things aren't always going to stay the same, and I think a lot of people get hung up on that about, like, Veil of Summer in particular, because they're like, dress isn't good anymore, Veil needs to be banned, but, like, your cards don't have the right to always be playable, and uh, it's, it's, like, sort of interesting when these sort of things happen, because then a whole new slew of cards become playable. Like, uh, remember Hope of Gearper, how, like, that didn't see play for almost an entire year after it was printed, and then I started testing it because of Mox Opal. And now we're at the point where, like, even Stormless that play green don't play Xanad's form. They play Hope of Gearper just because, like, magic's changed. And uh, just, like, reevaluating things when things... Reevaluating re cards when metagame shifts happen is, like, kind of awesome. And it's a good thing to do. And I think that's what uh, MM17 did when they did well in the challenge with their uh, aggro death and taxes list. Um, just, like, before we move on to start talking about that because like there, there's actually a lot to dig into here like the first thing i want to make clear is like it is okay to be wrong it is okay to have a bad take but just like say like yeah i was totally wrong about that like move on start testing with new cards if if necessary like it's not worth like taking your last stand on the hill to say dranith magistrate is not a playable card like that's that's not worth your time like Again, everyone underestimated just how good Companion was, and it's crazy, but most of the Legacy decks, like, have probably changed by at least, like, 15 cards. I, I, I don't know, like, I, I didn't do any, like, actual data checking or anything, but, like, lists have changed so, so much in the past couple of weeks. So one thing that bothers me a little bit about Dranith Magistrate, and this is more of a magic um, complaint than it is a card complaint, is things aren't symmetrical anymore, and they really should be. Like, I was facing Dr uh, Dranith Magistrate in Vintage, and my opponent played their Lurus, 
and then started casting cards out of their graveyard, and I was like, what? And I realized it only says your opponents. What happened to, like, the good old days when, like, powerful effects like that were symmetrical? And, like, if you named sorts to plowshares with your meddling mage, you could theoretically get your own stuck in your hand. Um, Can confirm. I don't know. Have meddling mage Luris in the past week multiple times while playing Luris. <laughs> Life's weird. Yeah, well, that goes back to what I said about Arena and being friendly to new players. Uh, Magic figured out close to a decade ago that Hexproof sells more packs than Shroud, and you're seeing the same thing being applied to all new mechanics. Like, uh, I agree it was kind of sweet that like Lord of Atlantis made any random merfolk your opponent might have also unblockable. Like, oh no, I've been betrayed. I have to consider that. But at the same time, like the person who would appreciate that interplay is not going to quit magic because they got killed by their own Lord of Atlantis. The the like random kid might. So it just purely as far as the game has grown a lot in the last decade, like enormously. And these are big reasons why, even if they feel kind of dirty in the older formats. So uh, one of the things that Phil and I were talking about before the last episode was like trying out new things and maybe Drandith Magistrate might have been actually better than Phil was giving it credit for. And I suggested that maybe to Phil that we reevaluate the entire shell of death and taxes. I was admittedly thinking more of a prison-esque shell and not the aggro version that MM17 was playing. Uh, but in my head, I was thinking maybe cutting Aether Vial and running like ancient tombs and chalices in the main deck. And uh, it looks like MM17 was thinking something similar but different with cutting Aether Vials for hard acceleration with like Lotus Petals and Mox Ambers, and it was super interesting. Um, I think, I mean, Phil was welcome to disagree with me. He's the expert on death and taxes here. But I think part of D&T's problem is that it's, it has all of its eggs in too many baskets. It's the control deck in some matchups. It's the prison deck in others. And in some matchups, it's the aggro or midrange deck. And sometimes it just feels a little bit unfocused or you draw your wrong part of your deck for that specific matchup. Okay, so this is going to sound really ridiculous to say, given how many hate bears there are, but like, hear me out. Part of the problem is that there aren't enough good cards to build focused versions of Death and Taxes. Um, the Despite the fact that there's so many hate bears available, when you like look at them and you think which ones are aggressively costed, which ones do enough, and also have an appropriately sized body to be competitive, the pool's actually really small, and many of the cards fight against each other. So, for example, Leon and Arbiter is like a really good like taxation effect, but it plays against many of the other cards that you want might want to play in the shell, like Recruiter of the Guards, Stoneforge Mystic, Squadron Hawk. And you run into a lot of problems like that, or you run into a lot of problems where when you play these hyper-aggressive hate bear shells, you start losing when you get behind. When you're playing, you know, 18 tutus in your deck, and your opponent plays a Tarmogoyf, you go, oh, crap. And, like, you, you just kind of fold to it. So by necessity, Death and Taxes needs to have a variety of tools so that it can have answers. And, like, part of it is the tools don't always exist in like the theoretical way that you want to. Uh, the best example being the thing that all death and taxes players want, which is like an effective rest in peace bear. And we get remorseful cleric, which like does things, but it's often not quite good enough at doing what it does. 
your opponent plays Tarmogoyf and you Remorseful Cleric their graveyard, they might still have a 3-4 Goyf, and you didn't actually hate away that card at all. So, Phil, I will say this. I kind of understand your pain. So before Echo of Ants was printed, the TES uh, community had quit playing Past and Flames because Past and Flames for a long time we knew was the worst card in our 75, but there just wasn't anything better. So we were playing fun cards like Mizzix Mastery, if you know what that is, to oh, flash I know back a discarded yep. Ad Nauseam. And we were back to trying diminishing returns because we were already in on Mox Opal at the time. We were like, well, if we're playing Mox Opal, that's similar to the Simeon Spirit Guides we played in 2008. Maybe we'll try diminishing returns again. But we always knew that Mizzix Mastery and diminishing returns weren't quite good enough, but despite being better than the past and flames on our deck. So it was... We were really fortunate to have Echo of Aeons printed, and I understand that desire to have something slightly better printed. But it, I will say this. This is where we might disagree a little bit. I feel like Death and Taxes is more likely to get those cards than uh, the store mechanic these days with the way that magic's, uh, you know, it's philosophy. Yeah. In the article I wrote, it was, Jesus, probably like a month ago now, like I talked a lot about how Death and Taxes went on this like five-year hot streak of printings. And now, relatively speaking, we're, we're kind of on a, a cooler. We haven't gotten quite as many pushed cards as we might. Um, and that's part of the reason why I've been experimenting a lot. Uh, so I've been very loudly vocalizing to the Legacy community that I think Vile is not a good card in Legacy anymore and that you need to be playing Mana Acceleration. So over the past two weeks, I've been playing like Lotus Petal and Chrome Box versions of DNT. I've been playing Search Stompy with both of those and Suppression Field. I've been trying Luris. What is Search Stompy? Uh, Search Stompy plays Leonin Arbiter and Suppression Field, uh, accelerating them gotcha. out and tries to play a turn one lock piece into a turn two lock piece as consistently as possible. So your opener might look like Suppression Field into Leonin Arbiter or Chalice of the Void into Thalia or something like that. Uh, the deck list is still a little loose. Uh, it's something that I brewed up with all of my subs. Uh, but, like, this is the time for, for exploration if we've ever had one. Um, and you've seen other pilots try seeing similar things. So, like, Eddie Zamora 5-0'd with Luris. Uh, or no. Humans. Yeah, I think it was, like, Luris Lotus Petal Humans. And I was seeing Luris Goblins, I think, which also had Lotus Petals. Uh, it's it's kind of a crazy world out there right now. So one of the things that I like about the aggro DNT list from MM17 is that I think historically one of the things Death and Taxes has always struggled with, or at least from my side of the table, is bridging that gap from turn one to turn two. And your list that you're talking about with Chromox and Lotus Petal, they all do that. You're you're able to cast a turn one hate bear, but historically living till turn two has always been a problem against Storm, Reanimator, and some of these other faster combo decks. In Deafening Silence, it bridged that gap, and I feel like that's why I started to see, like I've talked about it earlier, my win percentage shift on for a little bit. Um, because Deafening Silence changes that, where they can now go turn one Silence and a turn two Thalia, and that's often good enough for them to get their secondary hate bears on the table and for me to lose. And I think that one of the things about the aggro DNT list is it was really one of the first lists to not play Deafening Silence, but bridge that gap with Lotus Petal and Mox Amber 
And it can sort of fix that issue without ever actually having to play deafening silence. And that's pretty big. Yeah, I was talking to, is it Laverde? Anthony Laverde? Is that the correct, correct pronunciation? Correct. I was talking to him earlier today, uh, and he was saying, like, when DNT goes, like, deafening silence into Thalia, he feels like he's, you know, going to win that matchup 5% of the time or, or something like that. Like, that's that's just an absolutely brutal opener. Uh, but for so many other combo decks in the format, Deafening Silence doesn't actually do very much. Like, if you're playing against Show and Tell, like, you slow them down, but you don't actually stop their combo. And the same is true of things like Reanimator and, and Infect. So a lot of times, like, you can play a Deafening Silence and still die to their, like, quote-unquote combo pretty easily. And I think the, the mana acceleration has let me make stronger plays more consistently. You know, when you go turn one Thalia into turn two Revoker your thing, into turn three play a third follow-up thing, um, that ends up being way stronger than, like, deafening silence into first bear, I, I think. So uh, while we titled this section, like, keeping an open mind about, like, card choices and stuff about, like, card choices and future metagames and things like that, this isn't really just about DNT. It's good to keep an open mind about everything, and that includes companions which transitions us into our next section. But so many people are ready to dismiss companions before ever even really giving them a real shot. Uh, and it was a joke, but somebody that's prominent in the legacy community had a post about, I played a single league with companions. These things need to be banned. That is not a realistic approach. You cannot get an informed opinion off of one league where you're going in biased already. You have to play a number of matches and like really give things a fair shake out before you can have a strong opinion that's reasonable. Because a lot of people actually enjoy playing with companions, and I'm not sure if they're here to stay. Um, and I'm not the one that chooses that, but I'm going to enjoy them while I can. So, Brian, you've been playing Magic for quite some time. I, I assume you were playing when like the Planeswalkers first came out, right? Uh, and a lot of people kind of acted in a very, like, the sky is falling way when Planeswalkers came out, and I'm kind of seeing some similar things with Companions here. Do you have any thoughts on that as someone who's been around the format for a long time? Uh, yeah, so, like, Planeswalkers, it took a while for them to get crazy. I think it was, like, Jace the Mind Sculptor when people were really like, oh no. Because, uh, like, the first round of Planeswalkers didn't really do anything. They were all just, like, the most middle-of-the-road fair. This is representative of the color pie for this particular type of creature. And, like, they all just, like, plussed for some small value, minus to draw a card, and minus a bigger number to win the game. That was just, like, the formula at first. And then Jace shifted the paradigm. But, like, I I don't think that anyone freaked out quite the same way that they are about Companions. Also, for what it's worth, like in the past year, uh, if you follow Magic Twitter at all, people are recalling for the like retroactive ban or like nerf, like functional nerf of Planeswalkers now. Like it's it's just really strange. I, I don't know if you you guys have seen these conversations happening, but I follow like uh, Ben Stark and like uh, Hall of Famers and like real Magic pros, not just the legacy community and. It comes up like probably once a week where someone's like, it, would Magic be a better game without Planeswalkers? Poll, yes or no. And it's like, well, they're here. 
they are just fundamentally tied to Magic's brand at this point. There is a TV show in production about like planeswalkers and their adventures. Like, what good does this conversation have? Uh, so I think that we need to approach companions more like here they are. So what now? What rather than like these gotta go? Like I, I agree with you one hundred percent. Yeah, that's a yeah. great point. I don't like, think. I, it- I sorry, I but I, I agree with Bryant that like people calling like uh especially like I haven't played a match of vintage yet in this format, but I follow all of the major vintage voices and they all seem uniformly displeased with Luris because I like in a format with actual Black Lotus, it's just like if Black Lotus is in your opening hand, you have a three two lifelink plus whatever else you were gonna do. It's just literally free and so like i can see where that would be problematic but uh in legacy my experience has been pretty positive like it's the games are really interesting uh like i have a bunch of legacy videos up and i talk a lot in real time about like how i'm planning for the second wave like you it's now like on a an ancient battlefield where you know the other team has reserves. It's like, it, you, you're not just beating the army in the field. You know there's a reserve coming, and you know exactly what it's capable of in, in this case. So we're actually better suited than ancient warriors to to plan for the next round. But like, uh, if, if like normally it's like, I Supreme Verdict Delver, I'm good. I'm stable. But now it's like, okay, so I'm going to have to Supreme Verdict. Ne- on the following turn, they go Luris, recast Delver, and I need a black backup plan for wave two, which is really interesting to me. Like, uh, I I don't know how you guys feel, but uh, I've I've had a lot of fun with that, like navigating that and having reserves of my own. So I was playing a match on stream versus a Yorian deck. Uh, I forgot the person's username, but it was like Champ something or other, a very good miracles player. And like I have like four counter spells in my hand and a swords to plowshare, and my chat is like screaming at me like, "Why aren't you answering that uro? Why aren't you answering that uro?" And I'm going, "If I answer the uro, if I fight over this uro, I can't win the fight over Yorian, and I will lose this match." Like it's really weird. Like when you have limited resources to work with, and you know the companion is on the horizon, uh, it's really interesting what it does to games yeah i i recorded just today i i brewed up a a yorian list uh, i just <laughs> want i wanted to beat delver so i just played all eight strixes for supreme verdict just like plus all the normal like oko astrolabe stuff and uh, i did in fact 3-0 delver in my league and but my last round of the league it, round five was a yorian mirror and it was phenomenal like it, it was among the best magic i've played like the most fun because like you get into these battles where just like material on the board battles matters like i have two astrolabes and two abundant growths my yorian's good for four theirs is only good for two so like that's part of the metric and then it's like can i answer this four five is another part of the metric and then the the final game of my league it ended with me never casting my yorian like i got a little bit ahead they had to go for a yolo yorian for one like they had one abundant growth and I just like plowed the Yorian and then took over with my like Snapcasters and Oko. And Yorian was just, I had, I had probably 10 turns I could have cast it, but it was just like, I don't need to. I'm still ahead. Keep the reserves in reserve. 
Like that feels so good. It's so cool. Oh and, man, and, it like, feels so bad when you're on the other side of that. Oh yeah. Where you're just like, please, please just cast it. Please just take a draw three. Right. Like I and that came up in, in the league too. Like I played against uh I think three or four I think it was three Luris decks, three Delver decks, two of them had Luris, and then I played against a non Delver Luris deck. So three Luris decks, and like the the positions where my opponent didn't cast their Luris if they didn't have to were better for them. Like so many times I was just like, okay, it's turn four, please cast Luris, get your Mongoose back, and then lose it all to Supreme Verdict. Like they're they're bleeding me out slowly with one goose, and it's like, alright, please get the second goose in play and the Luris so I can Supreme Verdict all of them. And then like you have to manage that. And it, it's just really dynamic gameplay. So to go back to the Planeswalker thing for a second, last week I tweeted about how Companion and the reaction was similar to Planeswalkers. And like Brian said, the original Planeswalkers probably weren't as good as the original Companions, and that's fair. But would you guys say that the Companions are similar to 2020 Planeswalkers? Like, is Oko on the same power level as Luris? Because I, I would say so. I'd say that Luris is stronger, even. But, like, they're in the same ballpark. Yeah, that's probably similar like as far as the actual effects that loris has like it's a three mana sorcery speed permanent that generates a card's worth of value every turn which is comparable to oko it's just like it's always in your opening hand at the cost of you don't get to play oko (laughs) so exactly there's i i don't think it's better than oko but it's on a similar power level and for what it's worth, I think Oko is an appropriate power level for Legacy. I, I know some people don't agree with that, but I don't think he's insane. It, I mean, he's strong, obviously, but I don't think he's particularly bannable. And it's, it's more frustrating than anything else. Yes, uh, it, it is true that Oko is a paradigm shifter, and so is Luris, and uh, it's just another shift in the meta here. And for... For what it's worth, uh, in an earlier section, uh, it was thrown out that Companion might be more broken than Dredge, Phyrexian Mana, or Storm, and I don't think any of those things are true, for what it, for whatever that's worth. Like I, I think that all three of those mechanics are significantly more BS and unreasonable to exist than the Companion mechanic, and we've gotten used to all of those. So one thing that I want to point out is it's so much easier to deal with a Companion than it is a Planeswalker or the Storm Trigger. And a lot of people forget that Luris is still just a 3-2 creature. It dies to Bolt. As the guy also casting Luris frequently, my Luris rarely lives. It gets hit by Bolt. It gets bounced by Caracas. It gets Oko'd. Uh, people act as if it's like Luris lives on the table and is never touched. And a lot of the other Storm players that I interact with, I've seen some of their list recently, and they're like sideboarding two dead weight in multiple Torbond scripts. And a bunch of other like really cute cards, and I personally don't really like those cards. But I asked them, how often do you expect your Luris to live more than two turns? Because if it's alive for turn two, more than two turns, you've already won. And like recurring dead weight every turn isn't really what you want to be doing. And I think people will learn how to properly build around their companions. But I think not necessarily everyone's there right now. And that's another interesting sub-game of these companions. Uh, I know that I, for one love to see a Luris revealed across the table from me because like Luris could be anything. It could be aggro DNT. It could be dark depths. It could be the storm mirror. It could be miracles. It could be Delver. 
And I understand that, like, Lura shouldn't be played in every single archetype. Sure. Like, but I happen to enjoy the sub-game of trying to figure out what my opponent's playing and, like, how they're using their Luris and everything else. And if everyone's happy playing Luris, maybe that will change when there's more companions out there. But right now, it's super fun. Yeah, we're also in the early days still of everyone is playing Luris because they're pushing what this card can do. We may settle in that that's not the right thing to do. Like, a really fascinating deck building decision I saw was uh, uh, an elves list that uh, Julian posted. I believe Hello Newton was the original creator of the deck. The deck had the natural order package. It had Craterhoof Behemoth and Archon of Valor's Reach in the main deck, and it had Luris in the sideboard. So you can't reveal Luris because those cards obviously cost way more than two, but there's multi-levels of sideboarding where in the Delver matchups, they would cut the natural order package and suddenly be a Luris companion deck. And in other grindy non-Delver matchups, they would just board in Luris as a creature in their deck and still not be a companion deck, but they would have this grindy engine to dig for. And like the implications of that are just bananas to me where like there's like three different decks like three different ways to use a companion all in 175 and that's really really interesting so that kind of goes into our next point which was like the top eight was 75 percent companion decks and like brian said people are experimenting right now they want to test the limits they want to see what they can do so a lot more people are playing companions right now than i think will average out in the long run and part of this is, like, people are getting, like, Brewer's Advantage from trying different things. So, like, if you look at Martin Medmitten's White Steel Stompy list, I think once that deck is solved and people know that it exists, it'll be harder to win with it. But no one knew what Martin Medmitten was doing when he top, uh, lost the finals of the challenge, or maybe he won the challenge. I think it was lost the finals. But, like, it's something new and interesting, and people like testing these new and interesting decks. And you're not necessarily forced to play with companions. Like, Eldrazi's as strong as ever right now. Like, Eldrazi is in the top four decks on Goldfish, and it's still surviving and thriving in this new world because everyone's now playing a deck that loses to a Chalice on one or a Chalice on two. Yeah, and on that note, MM's deck list, uh, oh my god, does it fold to a Chalice on one? And I was so thankful that nobody knew that. Like, I kept playing against these Chalice decks, and I'm like, I'm going to play as if they board the chalice out because they don't know my deck list because like I'm so dead if they chalice on one. Um, and like, that's the brewer's advantage sort of thing where when people don't know what you're doing and they don't know how to play optimally, you can get a huge leg up. So uh, another thing that Brian mentioned on the intro, and I was hoping he wouldn't until we got to this section, but Bomberman lost chalice to the void. That's a real cost to playing that card they can't play trinisphere either not that they did before but like sometimes it would be a card you would get with karn and miracles all of a sudden either has to choose between playing 80 cards and having oko earl back to basics into fairy or being a Luris deck where they don't get oko and all those cards oh i guess that's what i was saying before uh but like between playing yurion and Luris, like that's a cool and interesting decision and like delver lost brazen borrower which answers uh dark depths Trinity Nemesis for the Mirror and Gurmag Angler. And I know it seems like every deck is now playing Lurus, but like Storm's really the only one that just got to slide it in. And even so, the Storm decks aren't even like the best Lurus decks right now, which is kind of crazy. 
Yeah, just today in my uh, Yorion League, I played against Jeskai Delver with a Stoneblade package, and they just chose that uh, having True Name Nemesis and Batterskull in their deck was worth more than Luris. So, like, it's already starting to bear out that it's not free. There's a real decision to make. You know how weird it is to play Death and Taxes without Flicker Wisp? Flicker Wisp is your freaking get-out-of-jail-free card for your opponent doing any bullshit, and losing that is so bad. Like, I was playing the White Weenie deck, and my opponent played Ensnaring Bridge in game one, and I just looked at it, and I'm like, well, I literally can't beat that card, but I'm going to play it out so they know I can't beat, like, so they don't know that I don't have outs to it. Yeah, I, that, Flicker Wisp was exactly the card I thought of when I was just, you know, laying in bed thinking about Legacy one night, and I was like, like, I was thinking, what does each deck lose if they try to become Luris? And Death and Taxes, I was like, oh, they lose Flicker Wisp, they can't do it. So like like fundamentally changes the death and taxes deck in addition to the stone blade, stone blade package of course like batter skull and the swords are gone but flicker wisp was the one even more than stoneforge mystic where I was like whoa that's a big loss. So uh, we mentioned it earlier but like we're seeing smaller deck doodlers because you obviously need to play permanents that cost two or less and so we're seeing a return to nimble mongoose partially because it's so good against like the jeskai lurus deck. And we're seeing less Haymaker magic, and that means, like, Uros and Okos and these huge bombs that are just, like, mythic rares that end the game if they take over. We're seeing more cards that are, like, classic legacy cards, like Portent, Counterbalance, Spell Pierce, Stifle, like these throwback legacy cards that are still very good, but they're not the Haymaker magic that's been popular the last two years. And uh, it leads to more, in my opinion at least, more, like, interesting and dynamic magic. And it's like feels fun playing with cards from when I was, you know, in my teens or whatever, revealing my age now. But uh, I, so I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I wonder what it would look like maybe in two years when there's 30 companions to choose from. And maybe not everyone's playing Luris. Maybe now there's a better Death and Taxes companion. Um, maybe Mono Red Stompy has a Rabble Masker-esque companion and people will have everyone will have something that they can play that fits into their strategy with some sort of weird drawback. Man, if I could just play that stupid elk while also playing Chalice, like, I'd be, I'd be pretty happy. Like, vanilla 5-5 five five, that's a companion in red. Like, we, we could make that work if I could still play Chalice. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I hope that is it is not the direction of magic that we just have 30 companions to choose from two years out. Maybe, like, 20 years out if we're up to 30 but i i hope this is not they don't become like planeswalkers and i don't think they're going to i'm pretty sure this is like part of ikoria lore that you just have a friend to adventure with a beast friend but uh may, maybe one will pop out in a commander product but like commander has already made it clear they're not super stoked on the companions so i don't know i, I don't think we're going to get any more companions for a very long time so you don't see them doing a return to Ikoria every two years for more companions? Uh, I certainly hope not. <laughs> well, Ikoria is not really that compelling, honestly, like lore-wise and story-wise. Like, as far as I can tell, there are humans and there are monsters. Sometimes they're friends, but they're usually fighting. And like, how deep can we go on that? Like, this, I have to th say this is not a rich world like Ravnica or Innistrad or Theros even. Or coming back is worth our time. I'm getting bored of the return to Zendikar, return to Ravnica every single year. 
they should move on. Like, honestly, I don't think they did enough with Dominaria, and I'm not really into magic lore, but growing up in it being set in Dominaria, like, that's what I love. And, like, we're just re- Return to Zendikar every two years is, like, getting kind of boring. Yeah, that well, being the... said, show me what the Phyrexians are doing again, because I'm into that. Yeah, what? Where is? where are the Phyrexians? Where is Jengataxius? Where is Memnarch? What are they up to? Like, I want to know about them. Uh, I... I believe Yogmoth is actually dead at this point, so their king is gone. Um, the, I think the Eldrazi, uh, Emrakul is accounted for, Ulamog and uh, the other one, Kozilek, are on the loose, so they could come back. Nicolbalus is in the prison realm, so the, the big bad from the last 20 years is currently on hiatus. Ugin is sitting there watching him, making sure he doesn't escape, so Ugin and Nicolbalus are out of the storyline for a while. Hopefully we get some fresh faces in. Also, since we're on the lore, I know this uh, uh, side tangent, but I'm reading all of the the original books, like from the first uh, five years of magic, and it was actually called Dominia at first and became Dominaria sometime later. Just something I noticed when I was reading the books. That's kind of cool. I was at a Leaving a Legacy event where one of the like uh, door prizes was some of the books, and I pers- like I personally don't want to read them. But somebody won the Invasion Block books, which is my favorite set because it's when I started. Like, Invasion's when I started, and I thought it was so cool. And they won these books and just did not care. And I was like, oh, man, I would have loved to have win, won the Invasion Block books. Like, that would have made my day. So funny you mentioned that because when I was on the stream with Phil, the chat was asking questions. And they knew I, I'm into the magic books. And they're like, what's your favorite arc? And I was like, Invasion. Because, like... Invasion is like the culmination of like they spent 10 years introducing you like in in Tempest, like the Wrath Cycle, like you learned about uh, Gerard Capetian and like you saw them find the Weatherlight and crew the Weatherlight. You got Captain Sisay and Squee and Karn and Krovax and all the the members of the Weatherlight crew. And Invasion is when they team up with Urza and just slam the fuck into Yawgmoth, who's crawling out of the the portal into Dominaria. And it it's like the end game, the Avengers Endgame movie of the book series. It it's really exciting, that particular three book arc. I won't lie, that sounds kind of awesome. Yeah, that's way cooler than I thought it was. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so it's so, uh, probably about time to start talking about like each one of the companions individually. Um given how much we've sort of like gone over our Luris points already. Um, I'd like to make a motion to just, like, skip talking about Luris more and go straight on to Zerda, if that's okay with the two of you. Uh, can we, we, uh, we have a sub point, small... yeah, about the, uh, the price of Mishra's bauble. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I have a so, uh... $500 loan account, account that Card Order gives me, and I also own a decent Magic Online collection, and this is one of two times in recent memory that I have had to borrow cards from someone in order to play a deck that I wanted. And that's crazy because, like, I borrowed four cards from Brian, like we already said, and it was like $400 worth of stuff. Yeah, and, and like, this is an uncommon that's been reprinted kind of recently. Like, this isn't even, like, a card from Weatherlight that a rare from Weatherlight or whatever. Like this isn't Null Rod that's on the reserve list and like from Weatherlight. Like this is a co- an uncommon that's been reprinted kind of recently. And the original printing was with the modern card frame. Like it's not even like ancient times that this card existed at all. 
So I went to go buy some so I could play them in vintage. And at the time, they were 58 tickets each two days ago. I told myself I am not buying them, went to go buy Urza's Bobble because I'm playing a combo deck. The effect honestly doesn't really matter that much if I see the top card or a card in their hand. Even a set of Urza's Bobbles were 29 tickets. Wow. <laughs> That's outrageous. I, mean, I, I paid the 29 tickets because I just wanted to play with Lotus and Vintage. But it's crazy that that's where we're at now, where bobbles are this good. Um, I have a friend who hasn't logged into Magic Online. This is not an exaggeration in three years. He goes, I definitely have at least one set of Mishra's Bobble, maybe two if you want to log in. And we couldn't figure out his password. But he's like, yeah, if you sell them, just give me like 75%. That's pretty dope. So since we're talking about the Magic Online economy, I just want to point out the highway robbery that is Luris. So uh, Luris dropped uh, like in the in like the fake existence, like some people were lucky to get him at like six or eight tickets or whatever. But like as soon as it was readily available, it was 25. Uh, at the same time, Gyruda, which is a multi-format four of, was two tickets. Luris is a two format one of and it was 25 so like clearly there was some amount of collusion among the like i mean they were selling i get it like the price drops when they stopped selling and people were buying at 25 but like that was a serious hype buy for everyone who wanted to play luris on the first two days of its existence it's already down to 11 like six days later at this point and i think it's going to settle around like five or less but uh, I don't own a Luris yet. I'm not going to lie. I have plenty of other companions to play around with. I don't need to PTQ. I'm already queued. So like, I, it's there's no sense of urgency. But like, I'm waiting for the uh, the price collusion here to settle down a little bit. I got my play set of Zerdas for like four tickets, and I got like all the Gyrudas for eight tickets, and like Yorion was like pocket change, and then this one Luris just so hot. 25 tickets that completely inflated but i guess that's what happens when you need to own a card on release weekend so uh phil mentioned him earlier anthony laverde was watching um yama killer stream where yama killer opened up 700 chests and he was the first person ever uh Luris. anthony paid yama killer 55 tickets to have one for the ptq the next day uh i am very lucky that callum whitefaces smith also opened up a Luris. It was generous enough to sell it to me for 30 the same day. And I honestly feel like 30 for a Luris is... I'm very happy paying that so that I've had it for... What, how long has it been out? Two weeks, and I've been able to test with it for two weeks. That was worth the 30 tickets to me. Yeah, if you're 100% locked to play it, it's just uh, absolutely, unarguably correct to be in your personal deck of choice. Like, I would have paid whatever it cost to get a, a, a Luris on day zero also. How about uh, that uh, big sack Anurag opening a foil set of Ikoria out of a treasure chest on like the day that it was possible to do that? So he was just like, already got every companion day one. Feels I good. begged him for a Luris and he shot me down. Wow. So uh, yeah, Anurag calling you out right now. Salt, salt, salt. It's okay. He already got kicked off his podcast. Oh yeah. Ooh. Fired. He definitely didn't leave to pursue other endeavors. all right so i guess we could talk about zerda all right um so this is something that brian and i have both had some degree of experience playing with um in my experience it's very powerful 
well, maybe I should say the decks that it's in are very powerful, but Zerda itself is kind of narrow. And you often don't actually win with the Zerda. You win by just like jamming some four mana Planeswalker down your opponent's throat on turn one because you have two Monoliths in your hand or like Monolith and Key. And like that gets the job done before you even actually have to cast the Zerda. And the Zerda becomes this backup plan. Yeah, uh, my the league I recorded with it was like very early before anyone had really tuned or fleshed out the tech and the list was kind of bad. Like it, it went all in on trying to combo. Like there was the four grim monolith plus three basalt monolith plus another basalt monolith in the board to wish for with Karn. And the sideboard had no counterplay at all. Like it was just more ways to combo. So like I, I lost to just like, I lost a lot of games where just like disenchant would have done it. And the sideboard didn't even have a Tormod script in it to wish for with Karn. Like it was just like a really messy early list. So all of my experience so far is through that unfortunate lens. But definitely the ability of that deck to generate four mana and then infinite mana is not to be understated. Like it's really explosive. So two things that I found personally is one, Zerda is not the easiest card to cast in this deck. Oh god, that's uh, so true. Yeah, like I've won a couple games just because my opponent only has colorless mana, and by the time they can cast Zerda, I've finally found my Chain of Vapor Dance or Karn or something along those lines. And the second thing I wanted to mention was there's games where you're holding open Abrupt Decay, and or at least from my perspective here, but Abrupt Decay does nothing to the to the infinite mana combo once Zerda's in play. If there's two monoliths, you can try to Abrupt Decay the Zerda or a monolith, but they're just going to make infinite mana in response. So I feel like some people play a little too cautiously against this Zerda deck, and they should be more uh, aggro or, you know, whatever. But it's really hard to disrupt them once they have had their permanents on the table. Yeah, That's not how you want to beat the Zerda Bomberman deck. Yeah, that's one of the lessons I got in the league I played with it, where just, like, sequencing your mana so that once Zerda's in play, you can make infinite through a disruption piece. So, like, just have... There was the, like, the first game I played, I just didn't play a Lotus Petal that was in my hand. I just forgot to do it before I cast my Zerda, and I lost because of it. Like, having one oh, more I lost mana that. To, that was rough. Yeah, to untap the uh, Monolith in response to the Plow on my Zerda. Like, I, I had one floating, because that's how Grim Monolith works with Zerda, and just didn't have the second one to go off again in response. And that's just, like, one of those things you do once. But keep in mind, like Bryant said, on both sides of the table, like, a Swords to Plowshares does not break up that combo if unless they're all the way tapped out to do it. So another thing that I found about the Zerda deck, um, and like I should probably pause for a second to say there's really two different Zerda decks. The first is a traditional Zerda Bomberman hybrid, and the second is just like Zerda Infinite Mana Turbo Carnforge. Um, and I think the latter is probably the better of the two deck lists. Um, I would agree. But I've yes, tried both. For sure. And my experience is that, my god, that deck mulligans a lot. Like, it mulligans so much, because Grim Monolith is so important to your turbo openers, that Serum Powder is, not ironically, probably, like, good and the real deal in that deck. Which is crazy. One thing that I love about the Zerda deck is that, at this point, people have gone so deep into finding what they need. They found a 
recent standard uncommon in glass casket and this is a terrific card in the board like i love that they're playing glass casket like it is so cool i don't know i just wanted to share that yeah so the other thing that i've experienced in playing this deck is it cannot cannot beat a null rod uh like once a null rod is in play the number of outs that you have to it is essentially zero because you technically have these seal of cleansings but most of your white sources are artifacts between your ancient dens and your petals and your opals so it's actually incredibly hard to get single white if there is a null rod in play uh and that sounds ridiculous but it's really the truth with how this monocolored mana base is constructed yeah, I've been playing a lot recently, and the amount of null rods running around right now are is just unreal. Um, I faced Eco Baron in, in the finals of a P, uh, prelim last week, playing the Yorion deck. They had four null rods, and uh, I've had to readapt my board plans entirely to the point where like I'm boarding all artifacts now, just because I'm expecting everyone to have at least two null rod in this current metagame. Yeah, the Yorion list I brewed up today, I had two Null Rods <laughs> and a Collector Roof in the sideboard, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to add two Stony Silence as well uh, when I move forward. The sideboard was kind of a mess. I threw it together two minutes before I recorded, but like now that I have a better feel, I think I want at least four, maybe five Null Rods in this format, yeah. which is kind of insane, but I'm into it. I don't like either of you right now. Oh, I've been, I've been singing the Null Rod praises really high. I had someone send me a donation deck list for Loam, and I'm like, yeah, okay, but how about we put two green suns into the main deck so that we could play Collector Oof main? Oh, you're playing Eldrazi? Well, what would you say about three or four Null Rods in the board? Like, I've been doing that sort of thing to every deck list that I've been playing. Yeah, to, earlier today when I was brewing up this Yorian list, at one point in my brewing, it was a Green Sun Zenith deck. And then I realized that I don't like the Green Sun Zenith deck when it's 60 cards, so I'm definitely not going to have any fun when it's 80. And I just went back to, I, I cut all that, but definitely having access to a tutorable main deck Null Rod right now is bananas. All right, um, so since you mentioned Yorion, why don't, we, why don't we go there next? Yes, please. Oh my god, Yorion. So this, I, I think that Yorion might be the sweet spot of like, competitive without being busted companion i was like he seems to be like right in that midsection of like nobody's complaining that he's busted and but he's definitely seeing play and either it is not busted it's just like the the dirtle player's dream like dirtle 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 trade one for one draw five i like that play pattern i like it a lot sign me up for that the other alternative is that it's horrendously busted and a 4-5 Maldrifter just guaranteed to be in your opening hand for when you're ready for it. Maldrifter Plus uh, is maybe that is just secretly the best companion. Uh, so we'll see where this lands, but I am really, really in love with Yorian and the games that result in in Yorian uh, being your companion. Uh, I've played Yorian in Pioneer and Legacy now. I've seen him floating around in Modern. I can't wait to try that, but really into it so uh two things one why are we assuming yorian's gender um and the the real talking point was like if you told me a year ago that people would be competitively playing ed card decks i probably wouldn't have believed you had made some sort of like have fun playing edh joke but yorian i love the constraints around playing it it just seems like brian said the perfect sweet spot of like companion and cost like if every companion here on out was on a similar power level i don't think anyone would complain 
Yeah, I think the Yorian deck building is really interesting. So like I'm I'm primarily a prison player, right? And so I'm presenting my opponent with a question. And the question is always the same. Can you deal with this right now? And when you're playing these 80-card Yorian decks, you're less likely to have the exact answer you need in your opener. So, like, say you're playing something like Red Prison, and you're going turn one, you know, Chalice or Blood Moon or something like that that's going to be pretty annoying. And when you're on the draw, your answer there is, like, Force of Will or Force of Negation. And so you're less likely to have the exact cards that you need and you have to do the best that you can to build in redundancy in order to make up for that. And it's led to some really creative deck building, such as abundant growth seeing play in Legacy in a non-Enchantress deck. Yeah, Legacy All-Star Abundant Growth. Like, it is a worse magic card than Arkham's Astrolabe uh, by, like, a functional degree, but it's pretty close. Like, it's... It is the second best Arkham's Astrolabe you can play in a Blink deck, and uh, I was impressed with the Yorian deck I played today. The ability to function without uh, an Astrolabe or Abundant Growth in the opener was, like, I I feared the worst. I was like, well, we got eight of these, Uh, we doubled the number of Astrolabes, and only increased the deck size by 20, so the math should work out favorably, but there were plenty of times where I just didn't have a way to filter my mana and you were still just like casting swords to plowshares and snapcaster and oko and abrupt decay and you're still just a sweet deck and it just happens to go off when you can actually cast all your spells it's probably too long to like talk about here as a bit but i think like cantrip theory is really interesting with these 80 card yorian decks like because of like the percentage of your deck that you're looking at is different so like when you're pondering and you have 40 cards remaining in your deck and you're looking for something specific that's very different than when you have, you know, 67 cards left in your deck and you're pondering. Um, so I think there's probably some cool design space and theory space to explore there. Uh, yeah, I, I promise not to go too deep, but when I was building my list, I decided to go brainstorm, ponder, and then just, that's it. Like, I, I, I have the, like, those are the card selection blue one cantrip spells like i didn't do a portent or preordain uh i had the the four astrolabes and abundant growths then i had all eight strixes in the deck so like i had lots of cantrips but i decided to just max out on cards that make a thud when they hit the battlefield or cards that cantrip more organically while producing material like the strixes and the yorion mirror i played in the last round their deck was full of preordains and they Mystic Sanctuaried up a Preordain three times, which is just, that did not seem powerful at the time. And it was always just like, bottom, bottom, draw, go. <laughs> and it's like, instead of trying to, like, by adding 20 cards to our deck, we've decreased our ability to make selections. So let's just fill it with good cards. Like, that's what I did anyway. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what how this bears out over time. But it is really exciting to think about. One of these initial lists was sent to me, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, yeah, all these cards are good, and then I glossed over the two-mana slot, where I saw three copies of Predict, and my eyes jumped out of my head. And I know that this person loves Predict, but I couldn't help but think, like, you're playing an 80-card deck, what are you doing? Uh, And I was like, you need to cut that card, like, your percentage of hitting blind is so low with 80 cards, like, I understand you're playing 12 cantrips, or 16 cantrips, or whatever you're doing now, but like, Predict has to go. 
And I think uh, that part of that's like what uh, might have helped. Like, I, I don't know the backstory. So uh, Rugved is the person that created the Luricals list, the Miracles with Luris that's gone back to a more traditional shell with like Portent. And I think part of that is people want to play cards like Portent and Predict and like these cantrips that feel more classic. Predict is sweet yeah. with bobbles. Yeah. And uh, so is Terminus. Like bobble yeah. triggering Terminus is really cool. Yeah. So I, I think it's really early to like see where Miracles is going. Because I've seen non-companion miracles, I've seen Yorian miracles, I've seen Luris miracles, uh, I've seen like a traditional counterbalance shell, I've seen uh, all sorts of crazy things as far as like miracles specifically goes. Um, lots of differences in like various 5-0 deck lists that I'm seeing across the, the Twitterverse. Yeah, and then Caracas, like... Caracas is a phenomenal card in Legacy right now in general because most people have a legend that they're just going to cast. But in the Yorian deck, like it becomes an engine, like unbeatable, just like chugga, 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 you're dead. Uh, I, I think that Yorian is the only one that really goes off with your own Caracas. Like uh, you're not going to Caracas your own Zerta or Luris unless you're saving it from removal. But uh, multiple times playing Yorian today, I was just like, Please let's draw Caracas. Please draw Caracas. And it's also some insulation. Like if they Caracas your Lorian to, to save four life, you just drew three. So it's a good deal. Yeah, Caracas so is back when Wishclaw was printed, I was looking at Caracas and TES as a way to bounce Thalia. Uh, so you activate Wishclaw, you get Caracas, and you bounce Thalia, and it only costs you one mana and a land drop. So I had bought a second foil Japanese foil Caracas. I might have said that wrong. But I was so pumped about it. And now that Luris was out, I was like, oh man, maybe now is actually the time to play Caracas and TES. It's still not. You can't afford a colorless land in your already four-color deck. I want to play it so badly, too, just because it seems really cool. But it but... casts your Luris. Uh, I definitely remember one time, this is ancient times, I was playing Elves back when it was a white deck. Before we had Crater Hoof Behemoth, we had to win with Mirror Entity. And I had Thalia and... Uh, Gadok Teague in play against a Storm deck, and I felt like a million bucks, and they were just like, Caracas, go. And I was like, oh no. And I couldn't win that turn, and then they were like, end step, bounce Teague, untap, bounce Thalia, you're dead. It's just like, <laughs> damn it. What's, that one what's slipped their away. username? It's, it's the ant player that has uh, AD in their name. 42 AD. 42 AD. All right. As an aside, Martin the number of times that I have been in unlosable positions against a stock deck list, and then they have had just like the absolute craziest tech to beat me, I can't count. So I like how you are 100% wrong here, Phil. Martin plays the wildest lists. Um, and I got to watch Martin play against a friend of mine, Devin Riley, who is ex-grave on Moto. At, uh, I want to say it was Niagara Falls. They were playing in one of the last chance qualifiers. And Devin's position looked unlosable. And all of a sudden, Martin drew Praetor's Grasp off the top in his Antlis, stole Devin's Jace, and then played Jace and won the game with the Jace. Martin is a madman who will play anything if it's going to give him a small edge. He also plays like two copies of Pernicious Deed in his Yeah, Antlis. that's it. That's it right there. That's what gets me. 
So uh, Martin's a master. He also plays a 62-card main deck with two main deck Abrupt Decays. Martin's a legend. This sounds a lot like uh, testing and tuning with Rick Shea. He is not afraid to put any card in any deck as long as it's blue so it can pitch to Force of Will, which leads to one of our favorite inside jokes here in uh, Pittsburgh Magic, where Rich was in the top four of a Star City Legacy Open with Bug Delver, and he had one Demir Charm in the deck. And it, that was just his, eh, it seems fine and it's blue card for the day. And on camera, Cedric and Patrick Sullivan were going through the list and they were like, yep, Tarmogoyf, that's a good one. Uh, Dar- Delver Secrets, of course. Demir Charm, just the one. And then, <laughs> pa- and then Patrick Sullivan goes, yep, you don't want to draw two of those. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is now just a Pittsburgh magic meme to say, wouldn't want to draw two of those <laughs> whenever you see a terrible card in someone's deck. I love that. All right, we have a chance to finish this under two hours. Let's talk about Gyruda. So I built, or I, I tried the, uh, as soon as Gyruda was no longer bugged on Magic Online, which is funny because it was bugged to be worse than it is. Like the card is better now that they fixed the bug, which is very strange and kind of obnoxious. Like emergency ban, day zero, because it's not good enough. <laughs> so the bug, if you didn't know, was... Gyruda doesn't care about Rest in Peace or Leyline. Gyruda mills four from each player, and then you can put an even cost creature from among those cards, those eight cards, into play. It doesn't say from the graveyard. It doesn't specify anything other than an even cost creature from among these cards. So as long as Gyruda can still see the card wherever it is, uh, is, if it goes into exile face up, it can still choose it. So, and... Gyruda's trigger resolves all at once. It's mill four, put a creature into play. There's no space in between. So there is no, uh, you can't crypt, you can't Nile spell bomb in response. Uh, uh, that doesn't do anything. You can't ley line, you can't uh, rest in peace. You have to have Grafdigger's Cage or Containment Priest, basically, to, to slow this down at all. Uh, so that's really interesting. That said, I tried the the balls to the wall Belcher version of this deck, and it's real bad. It's so bad. Uh, like, it's it's like Belcher. You're still gonna lose to a Force of Will, but unlike Belcher, it also loses to a removal spell like Swords to Plowshares or Caracas, especially Caracas. That one was a nightmare. Every time my opponent was, I revealed, I would reveal Gyruda as my companion, and they'd be like, Caracas, go, <laughs> and I just can never win. So that those were the early builds, uh, much like the Zerta build I tried. That was just like push the combo to the max. That was the Gyruda build I tried also. Uh, I believe that uh, some of you guys have seen or tried some of the more uh, iterated versions at this point yeah. that play like some other stuff. Tell us about those. So I originally saw this through PVDH, and I think Orem has been playing it as well. There's another version that is less combo intensive and has sort of a hybrid reanimator or cast some stuff plan that is playing things like Grizzlebrand, uh, Thought Not Seer, Unmask. Uh, it has a Burning Wish package in there as well, I believe, so that it has some degree of interaction. You're less likely to kill your opponent when you combo off. Instead, you're more likely to get like, I have a 6-6 and I unmasked you and I played Thought Not Seer. 
or I have a 6-6, I flipped Grizzlebrand into play, I've drawn 7, I'm ready to try again next turn. Uh, so it's less of a combo deck than more of kind of a double reanimator deck, in that you get Gyruda plus something else dumb, which the second thing usually isn't legendary, so you don't just fold to Caracas. Or if it is legendary, it's something like Grizzlebrand, where you're fine if your opponent bounces it. Um, the deck looks cool. Uh, I haven't actually gotten to play that yet, but I want to. I can tell you from uh, on the looks cool axis, that video got more views than any video I've posted in a long time. Uh, like People just love the busted stuff. I think the last video that got as many views as this one did as quickly was the Breach deck. So people love watching Busted Combo try to go off. I'm I'm sad to have disappointed them so heavily. So one thing that I've found is I actually haven't faced the uh, reanimator builds that Phil is describing. I've only ever faced the Belcher variants. But, I mean, my sample size is still pretty small, but I'm 4-1. and one, And it's not because TES is so good at beating the deck that's trying to turn one you that has Chalice of the Void and Mindbreak Trap in it. It's because... When this deck goes off, they're often playing Lion's Eye Diamond and discarding their hand, which means discarding their Mind Break Trap. And then imagine if you're facing Belcher, but when the Belcher deck goes off, they often reveal Taiga four cards down. Because that's what this Belcher's uh, Gyruda deck does. Uh, like, I've won so many games where my opponents milled 20 cards, put 20 power into play, and passed the turn. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll flashback Echo Vans now and kill you, or whatever I'm going to do. Um, it just seems weird to play a deck that loses to Swords of Plowshares, Chain of Vapor, Pyroblast, Caracas, like so many cards. Um, I don't think this deck is the real deal. I think eventually it will fade into oblivion. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But there's plenty of like tier 3 Beltrest decks out there. This is like, in my opinion, on the same power level as like Oops All Spells. I think at the very least, this is going to be the sort of deck where like you will definitely still see it on Magic Online where people are just like, I want to jam a league. I have 45 minutes. Let's go. Like, this deck checks those sorts of boxes. So on that note, I gotta say, those people are going to be really disappointed. Because unlike Belcher, uh, this goes to, to both of your points. Belcher, when it pops, it pops. The game is over. I mean, there's there's some chance sometimes that, like, the Taiga's in the top 10 cards and they don't take 20. Like, okay. But usually, when it pops, it pops. But... I played a lot of games uh, in the league. Uh, the video is on my YouTube. Uh, you can check it out. Like the interplay is high. Like Bryant said, like sometimes you just like make Gyruda, you copy it with Spark Double, and then you whiff and you pass the turn with 12 power and play. And you end up in this like dance of like, can they answer two six sixes on turn two before they d die from 20? And I had a lot of really interesting back and forth, like combat heavy games which surprised me a lot. Yeah, I, I watched most of that video, and I didn't realize how much of a difference there were between the clones until I watched your video. Uh, that was really useful in that regard. It, it's crazy how the clones stack up each other clone's ability as they go. So, like, your first priority should be uh, hitting Spark Double, which is the one that becomes a non-legendary, so you can grow Gyrudas instead of just rebuying Gyrudas. And then, like, if you copy a Spark Double with Dax Duplicate, now you have a non-legendary Gyruda with Haste and Dethrone. If you copy that with another Dax Duplicate, it has two instances of Dethrone. And like it, it just like goes deep, and it's really crazy from there. So uh, I had a lot of fun goofing around with the clones, figuring out what the right sequence of copies was. 
All right. Are are we on to the everything else category now, or do we have more to say about Garuda? No, I, I'm done. Yeah, that's bad. All right. Uh, so based on my experience so far, there is a huge power level gap between the companions that we've already mentioned and all of the others that exist. Uh, does that agree with what you all have experienced? So I've yes. seen, uh, I, I don't know how to say this, uh, Jingartha. I've seen that out of lands a couple times. Uh, but it's awkward because post-board they often can't use it because of the ley line of the void, so they can't reveal their companion. Yeah, I know Kellen Pistori was trying Jengartha uh, in lands, because it is free in the main deck, but it is just worse than a sideboard slot, it turns out. Like, this random 5-5 in the format where everyone has Caracas, like, just isn't that good. I am looking forward to trying it in Modern Storm, to be honest, though. Uh, I don't know if it's worth the sideboard slot, but it seems cool to just have like a backup plan as a 5-5 that doesn't lose to Graveyard Hate, where you can also tap it on your next turn and make mana for casting Gifts and Given. Yeah, it, it would be pretty sweet to just like, uh, uh, ritual, 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 Jengartha, turn two, go. <laughs> like, good luck, idiot. Like, it, then they cast like Damping Sphere and pass back, and then you just beat them five times, or four times for five. That's That would be pretty sweet. I'm into that. Let me know what that happens. I want to hear about it. So despite the fact that like all of these other companions are like noticeably worse than the others, the mechanic itself itself is still extremely powerful. So you should still expect to see the others around. So someone donated for me to play a cat stompy deck with Kahira. And I've seen like a Kahira good stuff pile with like Questing Beasts and Quizali Pride Mages, and someone else saw Elementals, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Joseph Dyer of Allrath XP. He's the legacy writer over on uh, Hipsters of the Coast. I'm pretty sure he posted a screenshot with, like, a uh, Kahira in, revealed as his companion, and he had a Chrome Mox with uh, Risen Reef under it and two caverns in play. And I was like, oh, baby, tell me more about this. So, so before Joseph uh, Dyer complains, he actually writes for MTG Goldfish. Oh, does he? Did he move over? I believe I don't know. so. Okay, my bad. He took Sorry, over Joseph. the This Weekend Legacy column. Okay, cool. All right, so Obosh? Have, have we seen Obosh? I have not. Like, so the thing about Obosh is that he's kind of out, or it they the thing the creature is kind of outrageously powerful like i've drafted obosh a number of times and when it comes into play and then you go to your attack phase your opponent's usually either dead or plague winded and but in legacy five mana out of any sort of deck that would want this effect is a big ask especially facing down caracas because like the source has to connect with obosh still in play even if you somehow get to six mana in your burn deck and you're like, oh, Bosh, bolt you. It's like, bounce it. I take three like normal. I, I can't imagine burn can't find a better way to spend five mana than Obosh. I think burn should be all in on main deck pyrostatic pillars right now, personally. Like with everyone like cantripping, playing bobbles, playing hyper efficiently, just punish them. Phil, what do you have against me? First, you're telling everyone to play four null rods and now you're telling them to play main deck pillars? Did and I upset rod. you? Play them both. I am a hateful man. I do one I thing. I can see that. So one thing that's that off. 
something that's happening in Pioneer and Modern is that the burn decks are just playing Luris. Because uh, Legacy, you got Fire Blast and Flame Rift. Uh, so you can stay mono red, but in Modern, you need Boros Charm and Lightning Helix. Uh, Pioneer, same story. So it's pretty easy to adopt Luris since they're already a white deck. So I guess we'll see if uh, Legacy Burn tilts white to want Luris or not. But their spells are so much better than the creatures comparative to the smaller formats that it might just not be necessary. So uh, moving on to Lutri, I want to share a story from this past weekend. I'm playing in the Vintage Challenge. My opponent, Game 1, reveals Luris. It appears they're on PL. I win Game 1. We go on to Game 2. They reveal uh, Lutri. Yes. And I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) I get demolished by, like, uh, they misdirect my recall to them. I force, they force back. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know what's happening anymore. They took my recall, whatever. So I very much lose that game. And then game three, they reveal no companion and tinker into uh, uh, Boss of Citadel and wreck me. I'm just like, I don't know what this is anymore. Like, I have no idea what's going on. So that... That ties back to that elf sideboard of like, do you bring Luris in? Do you bring your monsters out? How do you play this Luris? Like, is it a card in your deck? Is it a companion? And I am so excited to hear that this happened and constructed because, like I said, I've been drafting a lot and like, I'll have an opponent like reveal Yorion and then just like on turn five cast Obosh onto their deck. I'm like, oh shit. All right. That's a thing you can do. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, I'm so glad it happened and constructed to someone. Um, I know it just, just like there's a lot of cool counter gameplay to companions that like people don't discuss and like people are out there expanding and like trying to figure out like what what are the limitations of these companions and I love that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Eli Cassis also brewed a list for modern that just had like four Luris in the main deck, no companion. I just want to play this card, just a a souped up Eternal Witness type role player. So that's a thing you can do too. Yeah, we haven't seen the 4x Luris main deck deck yet, but I wouldn't see that as absolutely crazy either. Yeah, so like basically the conditions for that to be good, um, for one, I don't think 4 is the right number of Luris anyway, because it is a legendary creature and getting redundant is bad uh, with legends in a format like Legacy where every card matters. But playing like two or three Luris as part of a package, there might even that might even be in like an Obosh or Yorian deck. Like n- n- when we start to layer the companions as just cards in your deck with a different companion outside your deck, it's gonna get really interesting. So I think the last one we need to talk about is Umori. So Phil, when are you building Umori Enchantress? When's that happening? I'm not gonna lie to you. I don't even know what that companion is. <laughs> All right, so it's the Golgari one. It's Golgari, Golgari 2, four total. It's a 4-5. The deck building restriction is all of your non-land cards have to share a card type. And the payoff is cards of a chosen type cost one less while Umori is in play. You lose no, Destiny Spinner, an Enchantress. Like, right, ooh. it's a good time to be an enchantment creature. So, oh, oh, right, right. So you just lose Enchantress. I, yeah, okay, so, I guess you don't lose Spinner. Uh, you get to keep Spinner, you lose Enchantress, and you lose Green Sun Zenith. I, I don't know. So basically, I racked my brain with, is there any non-creature card type that can win a game on its own with no support from other card types? 
And I tried to think of like some kind of like burning wish pile where like, what if burning wish costs one less? Could we break it out of the sideboard? But like all the rituals are instants. Right of Flame isn't though, Bryant, Bannett. So there, I, I don't know. I tried to figure out like what artifact you can win with. Uh, like Walking Ballista exists, but like you don't have like Karn or Zerda to pay off. I, I don't know. It, it It's really hard. It's a really interesting puzzle. If anyone breaks Umori, I will give you a personal shout out on this podcast. I did get. A, I can't figure it out. I did get a donation for a Kyruga the Macro Sage deck. Uh, Sony trying out an Eldrazi deck that features that. We'll see how that goes. It's gonna be that's weird. that's gonna be sweet. I have eight spirit guides. Let's go. <laughs> I hope you draw a card off a spirit guide at some point in the league. That's what. I, that's the. That's the challenge I'm extending to you. Achie- unlock the achievement. All right. We'll see. I threw a couple Crystal and Giants into the deck list as well because, like, I'm sad that I haven't played that card yet. Oh, I got to draft one of those the other day, and it's as dumb as you could imagine in that format. All right. Um. So for some closing thoughts, we have kind of a sweet graph. Um, Brian, I know you've already engaged with this a bit, so do you want to talk about it? Uh, yes. Uh, let me open the link real quick so I can give proper credit. So this is... Anel Yal, uh, at Y-A-H-I-A-N-A-E-L on Twitter, uh, they posted a graph of all of the companions. It's not a graph, it's a spreadsheet, excuse me. But a spreadsheet of all of the companions and their performance in every format over the last uh, five, three to five events, however many ha- premiere events have fired on Magic Online. And... It's really cool to see, like, the distribution. Basically, Luris, you see, got a lot of play in Standard the first week, then fell down to just three copies from eight uh, over the course of four events. But then it goes up in Pioneer, up, up, up. And then Modern, it goes even higher. Then in Legacy, even higher. And then in Vintage, even higher. And it's just like, the number gets bigger over time and as the format gets larger. And Luris is the only one with just like a straight full column of play. Like Lutri has only really made it into vintage. Uh, Karuga has only been in standard. There's a couple other like blips here and there. Apparently someone did well with Umori in standard. I'm surprised to see that got played at all. But I guess if you're going to win with nothing but creatures, standard is the place to do it. So it is pretty interesting. It, it highlights more of the card pool than anything else, really, once you look at this, like what card pools are capable of and what gets broken uh, as you go deeper into the formats. But it is just really cool if you enjoy vis- visual representation of data. Yeah, so for those of you who are just listening and you don't have access to this graph, uh, just to give you a, an idea of the range here, um, in standard, Luris was about 20% of the format. Whereas in Legacy and Vintage, it was uh, 47% in Legacy and almost 49 or Sorry, about 48% in Legacy and about 49% in Vintage. Whereas all of the other companions um, in various formats, like the highest we're seeing them at is about 7% aggregate across formats. Whereas Luris across formats is about 37%. So Luris... Uh, if you bet on that horse cat nightmare for that weekend, uh, you came out ahead. So it's worth noting 37%. That's very similar to the percentages that Oko is seeing play at. Except Luris is seeing play across multiple archetypes. Yeah, so specific to Legacy, 
uh, Luris is at about 48%, um, which would okay, be that eclipsing is Poco by, you know, 10%. So that's kind of, I, I guess, our closing thought for today. You know, we we all have largely liked gameplay, uh, but it is clear that, like, Luris is definitely a great thing to be doing in this format, uh, at least this early on. Um, do you all have any other closing thoughts or things that we should uh, have on our radars as legacy players? Um, I just want to go back to the keeping an open mind thing. Like, I'm not sure that companions are here to stay, but give them a, a real test. Play them, form real opinions, not just I played a league and they're bad. Uh, but also, like, we didn't do it when we opened, so I'm going to do it now. Special thanks to our editor, Phil Blackman. You can find him at Force of Phil on Twitter. He's a host of Eternal Dirtles podcast, his own podcast. And uh, we appreciate what he does. All right, folks. Have a great rest of the day. Keep on slamming some companions into other companions until they band or you get bored or you discover the next broken deck. 